just before we get started into our message today, I just want to take just a second and say thank you to you guys. Uh, this is my third sermon that I've uh, taught during my residency here. And uh, Cassie and I are going to be uh, headed out to start a new church here in Asheville um, next year. And so just part of my residency at Highland is uh, Shannon just giving me the honor uh, to speak in his pulpit. And uh, you guys are really honoring me with uh, just listening to me and let me practice. So I really value that. I really take that seriously. I really appreciate that. And I just want you all to know that it means a lot to me that you guys have uh, listened to me and let me let me practice and been some guinea pig ears for me. So thank you. Um, also, before I go into this, sir, this uh, message, I just want to give proper credit uh, to, the, to the message. Uh, just like any good book has an acknowledgement at the beginning of the book, um, my dad and I, uh, he, he really helped me write this message, and I just have to say that because um, my dad's been my pastor for 30 years, and um, he and I have spent countless hours this week. I, we've probably spent eight, ten hours just talking about Joshua this week. And there's just an unbelievable amount of amazing content in this book. And uh, in, in fact, uh, two nights ago, we were just sitting there joking. It's like, we just wish we could just set a table up here and talk about the book between the two of us and, and let you hear because we, we were learning so much. And so anyway, uh, the content is strong today, and I, and I give my dad credit for that. Um, if the delivery bombs, then you can blame me. So, but the, uh, the, content, the content's all good. Um, before we get started today, I really just want to kind of give a little bit of a disclaimer, kind of a, a rating, an, almost an R rating on this message. And don't worry, you, you don't have to cover the kids' ears. Um, but just the reality is, is that we're not going to look so much at Joshua the man today. We're going to look more at Joshua's mission. And Joshua's mission um, and the, as the leader of the nation of Israel was not a pretty mission. It was not clean. It wasn't neat. Uh, it's actually hard to explain and it's hard to understand. And in fact, his mission and what we're going to talk about today is probably one of the most avoided pieces of scripture uh, by Christ followers. We just because it's hard for us to handle. It's hard for us to wrap a brain around uh, what goes on in, with Joshua and, and the nation of Israel coming into the promised land. And I actually had some conversations last week after the service, after Moses with some people. And uh, they were just asking questions and saying, uh, how does a loving God kill people. And that's just a real stumbling block uh, to try and understand the correlation between God's love and his annihilation of entire people groups. And so I just want to warn you, that's what we're jumping into today. And uh, it's not a small task. And believe me, I'm not going to answer all your questions. I'm not claiming to uh, have all the answers, and I'm not going to leave it all neat and tied up for us to walk out feeling good about this. What I do hope that I can do is create some sort of parameters, uh, hopefully create some sort of boundaries for us to begin to um, move forward in an understanding that in some way God's war also demonstrates God's love. And so that's what we're going to be walking into today. So you've been duly warned, and uh, so here we go. I want to start by actually reading the book out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. And the reason I'm doing that is because uh, the book of Deuteronomy is um, Moses' final sermon to the nation of Israel. What's about to happen is the nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land after they've been sent into the wilderness for refusing to go into the promised land the first time. 
And Moses is giving his final decree to them. He rewrites, he re uh, says the whole law to them. He gives them specific warnings. He gives them instructions about taking the promised land. And then he prophesies about them and what's going to happen to them in the book of Deuteronomy. And so uh, chapter seven is kind of long. I encourage you to read along with me. But the reason I'm doing it is chapter seven is actually a synopsis of the book of Joshua. Deuteronomy seven is actually a synopsis of the book of Joshua. And so it's going to kind of give us a big picture of what we're dealing with and how this isn't actually a clean, neat scenario to have to wrestle through. So uh, here we go. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drive out before you the many nations, the Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for you will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asher poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their faces by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their faces those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to his ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will, be, he will bless, you, bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and the land that he swore to your ancestors to give you. You'll be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you from free from disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the people the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. We can, how can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. He saw with your eyes the great tri- trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples who now, you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them. For the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. Little by little, you will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. 
He will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their God are the gods are to you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them and do not take it for yourselves or you will be ensnared by it. For it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house or you like it will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detest it for it is set apart for destruction. Let me pray for us. God, it's so amazing that we get to sit here and talk to the mighty, awesome God personally that this passage is about. And God, we just want to confess that these are some hard things for us to get. It's hard for us to wrap our brain around how big you are and how amazing you are and how your love and your wrath and your justice can all be used for your glory and all define you as a good God. But God, we just ask for your mercy on us and we ask for your ears. We ask for your mind. We ask for your heart to, and we ask for your spirit to receive the truth that you have for us here in this message. Amen. Now, the first thing that we have to discuss is the biblical concept of holy war. Now, because we're obviously talking about war, we're talking about Joshua going in and fighting and taking and cleaning out this land from all the people that are possessing it. So we want to understand that God actually has rules for doing this. And there's 11 specific rules for holy war. And we're not going to talk about all of them. We just don't have time. But one thing I do want to make sure that we do understand about holy war is that we, is that um, God's is going to battle in holy war against his enemies. It's God that's going to battle. Now, God's enemies are people who have willfully rejected him and who've chosen to hate him. Now, only God gets to go to holy war, and it's never for nationalistic or expansion purposes. It doesn't, holy war doesn't exist just because uh, people want more land, and so they get to go fight in the name of God. That's not holy war. So it's not, it's not just for growth. Um, God only goes to holy war for the preservation of his name and the display of his holiness among humanity. Now, he can and has and does, and we've seen him use many different agents of holy war throughout Scripture. And kind of the two key ones before the nation of Israel goes into the promised land, we see in Genesis 6, and that's the flood. The flood is actually God declaring holy war on mankind. Now here, God uses water to wipe out all the people except Noah from the face of the earth because humanity had become so wicked. And that's in Genesis chapter 6, if you want to read that story. Now in Exodus chapter 7 through chapter 12, we see God go to holy war when he delivers the people from, uh, in, from slavery in Egypt. And the ten plagues that Moses administers against Pharaoh in Egypt is holy war. It's God doing all those things against Egypt. It wasn't actually Moses doing those things. So we can see that God uses many different agents to wage war against evil. And we're about to see that in this case, his next agent is his people, his nation of Israel and his leader, Joshua. Now, one thing that we have to key in on as we 
and we have to anchor ourselves in as we walk into this very hard to deal with scenario, this scenario that people are killing other people in the name of God. What we need to anchor ourselves in is a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 that says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who, he, who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their faces those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. So today we really want to look specifically at the first half of Joshua. And we want to look specifically examples for God's love and patience and his mercy in the midst of the war. And we want to try and understand what it means for a people to actually hate God. Now, before we even go into Joshua, we, un- we get a great example of this. We get a great example of um, God's love and patience towards a people that hate him. We get to see that in uh, Genesis 15. And we're going to go back and look at the original covenant that we talked about, I guess it was four weeks ago, that God gave to Abraham, how this whole story started in Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. And it says, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. So God is telling, he's prophesying to Abraham about the enslavement of the people in the land of Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And we talked about that last week with Moses. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Now, what we're about to talk about, verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Let me read that again. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. You ever wonder why God let his people, his chosen people, the people that he's given a promise to live in enslaved captivity for 400 years? I mean, because he, they weren't being punished. They hadn't done anything wrong. They were actually just prospering in that land and they had saved uh, all of the world and they had saved all of Egypt by, um, by managing the crops properly. And so, but instead of the reward, instead of being blessed, was being enslaved for 400 years. That should be a little confusing to us, but we get that understanding in this, it's when we talk about um, the sin of the Amorites has not reached full completion. We see that it's because of his mercy and his grace towards the Amorite people that God lets his chosen people live in captivity for 400 years. So for 400 years, God was allowing, allowing the Amorite people the opportunity to live in the most abundant, fruitful, glorious land on earth with the opportunity to turn to him. God is being patient toward the Amorites and he's, while his, his people are living in captivity. This was to allow them to prepare their hearts to receive the message that the Israelites would bring of a relationship with the true God. Now, as we move into the book of Joshua, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this. And this is, this is really hard to do because Joshua is an amazing book. And it's an, actually a great read. It's just, it's, it, it reads like a really good uh, adventure action flick um, movie goes. So 
uh, I'd really encourage you to read it. And I want to remind you, though, that it, uh, we're looking big picture today, and we're looking at themes, and we're trying to understand how all the, we're trying to understand all this war and killing, and w- which means we're going to be looking for examples of the love of God towards the people he is annihilating. And we're also going to look for examples of the com- people's continued hate in spite of a loving God. So here we go into the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1 is that God gives Joshua his marching orders into the land of Canaan. Chapter 1, you got it. That's it. How's that for a summary? Chapter 2, something very interesting happens. The first city to be taken by the Israelites in the promised land is Jericho. Now Joshua sends two spies into Jericho before the Israelites cross the Jordan. And they end up staying in a home in the wall of the, of the large city surrounding Jericho. And this home was the home of Rahab the prostitute. Now the king of Jericho finds out that these spies are living in the wall, or are staying in this wall with Rahab the prostitute. And he goes to Rahab to kill these men. And she tricks the king to save their lives. But in the meantime, she asks them this question. And she says, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and this is in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when he came out of Egypt and what you did at Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. It's an amazing declaration that she makes there. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign. Now we later find that Joshua does spare Rahab and her entire family, but he doesn't just save save her, but check this out. In Matthew chapter 1, We read in the lineage of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And I'm going to skip down to verse 4, and it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 16. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Did you guys catch what happened there? It was because of her confession, God not only spared the life of Rahab, he makes her one of Jesus' great-grandmothers. If that's not mercy, I don't know what is. Now, a side note is that many scholars believe that Salmon, her, her husband, was one of the two spies. Now, that's a good story. Hollywood doesn't come up with stories like that. I mean, this guy goes in to inspect the land. He stays in this uh, little room in the wall, falls in love with this prostitute. She confesses the Lord. They get married. Jesus. I mean, come on. It doesn't get better than that. What a great story. So, um, so what we learned from Rahab's, Rahab's confession is that God was not a pa- attacking people who had no knowledge of him. 
It was, it was people who knew him to be the one true God. We saw that in her confession, and they still rejected him. Furthermore, Rahab's story shows us God's willingness not only to protect his enemies who turn to him, but he would allow them into his family. Now, the next thing that happened is the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan, and that's an amazing story. Uh, I hope you read that sometime. So you've got the next step. And after they cross the Jordan, uh, we see that they are now camping in the, sa- the, the shadow of the city Jericho. And what happens next? What would happen? What, what, what's your guess when uh, these people have encamped, ready to go to war? They're, at, they're right there uh, at the foot of their enemies. They're going to sharpen their swords and get ready for battle, right? No. They sharpen flint knives and all the men get circumcised. <sighs> Didn't see that coming, did you? Now, remember, they just come out. Now, why did this happen? Remember that the Israelites had just come out of the, the wilderness where their parents had all been killed off. And God had not let this generation be circumcised. Because if he had, for their parents to circumcise them would have been hypocrisy on their parents' part. Because their parents had rejected God's desire to take them into the promised land. They didn't trust God for who he was. And so God did not let them bear the sign of the covenant on their children. So God waited until these, the children actually crossed the Jordan themselves, saying that they trusted God to go into the promised land. And then he let them then be circumcised to bear the mark of the covenant. So what happens in Joshua 5, chapter 5, verse 8, it says, After the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Now, I don't know how long this healing process took. Um, I do know that, you know, I've had stitches a few times on minor cuts, and it takes, you know, two, three weeks before that heals up and the stitches actually come out. So this was a, this was a pretty extensive surgery with a sharp rock. So I'm going to imagine it took a while for the healing to happen. Um, my point is, is the Israelites are literally at the feet of their enemy. They're at, they're at the foot of God's enemy and they're handicapped. They're completely vulnerable. Now, the next thing that happens after they're healed is that God tells Joshua and the army to march around the city of Jericho once a day for six days. He gives specific orders to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to play trumpets, but to be completely silent without shouting or jeering or taunting the enemy. Now, let's talk about this for the standpoint of a military strategy. Now, you don't have to watch too many medieval like war movies to understand that this is a bad idea. Because, like, just think Lord of the Rings. What happens to the guys who are standing at the foot of the wall of the enemy? They're getting large rocks and hot oil poured on them, right? So this was not a bright military strategy, uh, in terms of wanting to win a big battle. So what does this actually tell us about in terms of God's love? Now, the common interpretation, and I agree with this, is that God was demonstrating his strength, that he could protect his people and take the city of Jericho on his own without them. I think that's true. But I think since we're looking for examples of God's love in the midst of war, and we're looking for examples of people that hated God, I think we can look a little farther into this story and we can see what's actually going on between God and the people of Jericho. Now we know from Rahab's confession that the people of Jericho knew 
What we know what they knew about. They knew God had rescued the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. They knew about the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. The, as the Israelites had walked around outside the promised land for 40 years, these, their enemies had been watching them, and they knew, they would have known that God's people had the law. They would have known he had the Ark of the Covenant. They more than likely have seen the pillar of fire and the cloud. They've seen God's presence in the pillar of fire and the cloud. They knew the Israelites' clothes weren't wearing out. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says they wore the same clothes and they didn't wear out for their entire wandering in the wilderness. If we could have that shop in the mall, they would, they'd have a good business going. Now, they also knew that God was feeding, miraculously feeding these people because they were close enough to their encampment to, I'm sure, see the bread falling from heaven. You see, God's miracles performed to the nation of Israel he was not just proving himself to the nation of Israel, but he was declaring his supremacy to all the surrounding nations and to his enemies. Look at Joshua chapter 4, verses 23 and chapter 5 through verse 1. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until he had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before, before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. The people of the region of the promised land that God wiped out with the children of Israel, they were not innocent bystanders. They knew who God was and they knew that he was coming. He had allowed them to live. He had allowed his enemies to live in the promised land, which was the, sec which was the most fruitful, productive, abundant piece of earth, second only to the Garden of Eden. They lived in ultimate prosperity for 400 years while his people lived in slavery. He showed them who he was through the Israelites' rescue from Egypt and the journey into the wilderness. And then, since there was not an, and then, since this was not enough to convince them to turn from their false gods and follow him, before, the, before he even attacked them, he walked his people into their land. He walked his people into their land, into their presence. He had them perform a major debilitating surgery on themselves in the presence of their enemies, rendering themselves vulnerable. And then he made a final plea to offer salvation to his enemies by allowing them to walk silently around their, around their city for six days. Now, what did the people of Jericho do in response to this plea, this offer to be saved from God? In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites, and no one went out and no one came in. Now, this passage happened before they actually walked around the city, but there's no indication that the situation changed while they were walking around the city. The, the city gates stayed closed. They stayed barred. No one came in or out. Now, the people of Jericho did not send an ambassador to the Israelite army while they were recovering from extensive surgery or walking silently around the city. Now, you think that would have been a perfect time for them to wave a red flag and walk out to these people who they obviously knew how powerful their God was and just go, hey, what are our options here? What, we obviously see that you're up to something and it's not going to be for good for us. So what are our options? Remember Deuteronomy 7. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. God created every possible opportunity to show those people that he loved them and he had no desire to kill them. Yet they didn't even inquire of his terms. Instead, they locked their doors and turned their backs on him, making it clear that they hated him and they hated the holiness that he was trying to bring to their land. Let's move on to to the story in chapter 9. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase this a little bit. It says, verse 3, However, when the people of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho, now God goes ahead and destroys Jericho. They, they didn't come out of the city. Um, on the seventh day, the people shouted around the city. The walls fell, and they took the city and annihilated it. So the people of Gibeon had heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and, and Ai, and they restor- resorted to a ruse or a trick. They went on to delegate uh, as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wine skins, cracked and mended. They put worn and attached sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, we have come from a distant country to make a treaty with you. Now, what was happening here was they were pretending like they came from a long way off, but actually they were only a couple days away. They were trying to increase the Israelites' pity on them. Now, here's what happened. When Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you? Well, actually, you live near us. You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Now, here's what their answer was. Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all his inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We know we are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. Now, there's two things we get from the story of the, the Gibeonites. First, in verse 24, their confession, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out the inhabitants from before you. The Gibeonite testimony makes it clear that not only were the inhabitants of the promised land aware of the things we talked about earlier, they were aware of the, the nation of Israel's travels. They were aware of God's goodness to those people. They were aware that God was coming to war of them. He had given them all these signs. He had appeared vulnerably in front of them. Not only were they aware of all those things, they also, they also were quoting scripture. They had, this was from Deuteronomy 7, the passage we just read. They understood what God had told Moses and Moses had quoted to the people. They may not have had the law, uh, the scriptures there in hand, but they had heard it. They understood, so they also had God's word. Ultimately, the Gibeonites' testimony is proof of God's true desire for his enemies. They did not even come with pure hearts. They came with deception, and yet they demonstrated their desire to be shown mercy, which was God's greatest desire if only the people would have asked. At this point, we have really only taken a look at two things from the story of Joshua. We've looked at the lengths to which God desires to show mercy to the enemies of the Israelites in the promised lands, 
And we've looked at what is the response was, what the response was of both the people groups and the individuals who acknowledged him as Lord. Let me say that again. We've seen his desire to show his mercy to people, and we've seen what his response was to individuals, to Rahab, and to people groups, the Gibeonites, who asked for mercy. Now, chapter 11 gives us a bit of a picture of what turned out for the rest of the Israelite enemies. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now you might say, wait a minute, if you're paying attention and hearing that, that doesn't sound like a lot of mercy. That doesn't sound mercy. It said God didn't show them mercy and he hardened their hearts. But I want us to understand what actually happened here because there was a progression that got them to that point and it spelled out clearly for Pharaoh with the deal, when Moses deals with Pharaoh to release the people of Israel. If we look at verse 15 of Exodus chapter 8, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And then in Exodus 8, chapter 8, verse 32, it says, But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. The final result was that, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he, would not listen to Mo- and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. So what we see here is what happened when it said God hardened the hearts of his enemies and didn't show them mercy. This was actually ex- after extensive pleading with them, just like we see with Pharaoh, as that it was Pharaoh that repeatedly hardened his heart when God gave him a chance to surrender and release the Israelites. At some point, God just says, time's up. These people have proven, despite all my efforts, that they hate me. And now it's time for me to move on. I'm God, and I'm on the move. I'm bringing holiness to the world. I'm bringing holiness to my people. I've given you a chance. I've pleaded with you. I've begged with you. I've sent my people to you as an agent of my love. You've rejected me. You've hated me. I'm moving on. So as we wrap this up, let's look at chapter 13, verse 16. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. What does the name Joshua mean? Jehovah, God, is salvation. Look at me at Luke, look, look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. What does the name Jesus mean? Jehovah, God is salvation. Joshua and Jesus have the same name. Last week with Moses, we saw that Moses was a piece of the Christ picture that says Christ will deliver people who are incapable of delivering themselves. He leads us out of slavery when we're powerless to save ourselves. Now this week in Joshua, we get the other half of the picture Christ is the one that not only delivers us, he leads us into the, to the promise of God. Joshua 5, 13, verses 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him and with a drawn sword in his hand, Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, 
But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. When Josh, then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua did this. That word neither is really interesting because it's God saying, I don't pick sides. I am the side. You pick me. Now, who is this commander of the Lord's army? It was Jesus. Now, there's some debate about this, and some people say, no, it was just a messenger of the Lord. I tend to believe, and I think if we had time to really unpack the facts, that it was actually Jesus. Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Now, our greatest, I think one of the greatest uh, arguments for this is in Revelations 22, when a messenger of the Lord comes to John in Revelations chapter 22, and John bows down and worships him, and the angel says, no, get up. I am just a servant like you. Do not worship me. But here, this messenger not only accepted the worship, he encouraged it. Only God is holy. Only God is deserving of worship. Only God will allow himself to be worshiped. This is a very strong case that this was Jesus. Now, you see, it is not actually Joshua or the Israelites fighting for the promised land. It was Jesus fighting for the promised land. Moses plus Joshua gives us a complete picture of Christ. Deliver leader into the promised land. What does this all mean to us? I want to look at 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 15, and I'm actually just going to paraphrase this. I'm actually just going to read a few passages. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says in chapter, in chap, in, I'm sorry, verse 8, and Drew, Kim, you guys can go ahead and come up and uh, get ready to lead us in worship. It says in verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of, in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. What's this tell us about Jesus? What do we actually get to learn from Joshua's story? That was just round one. Round two's coming again. Jesus is coming back. And right now, we're in a season of God's patience. Just like 400 years, God was patient with his enemies, just as he was patient as he walked, let his people in the wilderness and displaying his majesty to his enemies, just as he was patient as he allowed his people to enter into his enemies' camps vulnerable, God is now in a season of patience with us. But we know from the story of Joshua what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. 
and there's going to be an option. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Who's the wicked? Who are the people that God is being patient with right now? It says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We're all the enemies of God. We have all at one point in our lives hated God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Now we're going to enter into a time of communion. And this time of communion is just a symbolic act of those of us who have confessed and understood that we were the enemy of God. But now in Christ, we are his inheritance. We're loved. We're the object of God's affection. And we come recognizing that that is of nothing of our own merit, but it's a free gift of God. And so we come to this table and we say, thank you, God. We say, thank you, Christ, that it was your body that was broken and it was your blood that was spilled so that I no longer have to live as your enemy. I'm not even just your friend. I'm your child. That's what this communion is about. Now, if you're just here and checking this all out, and this is something that's, that's confusing with, to you, and you're just trying to figure out what we're doing here as Christ followers, I want to encourage you. I understand that I haven't made this all clear. I understand that I've talked about some really big, hard-to-swallow things. As a Christ follower, I still have a hard time swallowing it. But what I invite you in this time of communion is to continue to watch and to wrestle with the reality that God is in a season of patience. and He's showing mercy to mankind giving the opportunity for us to choose him. God doesn't punish us for our sins. We choose him or reject him, and he honors that choice. Now is an opportunity for you to wrestle with that option. We don't do an altar call very often here at Highland, but I'm going to be standing over here to the left, and Shannon's going to be over here to the right. And if you're in a time of wrestling with that decision and that choice, and you'd like to talk to somebody or pray to somebody, with somebody about it, I want to encourage you that this is the most important thing you'll ever do. And I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you about it. You're welcome to the table.